Well, I'm going to tell you, this feels great. We felt, in many ways, being robbed of celebrating Easter last year, and we are so grateful to be able to celebrate it. Whether you're with us on campus, you're in our overflow section, welcome to you, or you are still watching this online, participating through our live stream, happy Easter, he is risen to you. So, since we, got a, we were sort of robbed last year, we thought and prayed about today, and we decided that we need to go back and just share the story again. Remind us all of that story, and so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to share a story, and it's going to come, as all good stories do, it's going to come in three acts. And it's going to come that way because that's how Scripture gives us this story. This holy week of Jesus' life, often referred to as the Passion Week of his life. And I'm going to acknowledge up front, you may not fully believe this story. I'm going to say we do, but I want you to be open to the story. Because there is great credibility to this story. In fact, when people ask me about why do I believe, I don't start with because the Bible says so. I start with because we have evidence that Jesus lived, and he made some radical claims. And either his claims are completely false and delusional, or there's some truth with it, and we have to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. And he presents a question that you can't get around too easy. One of the claims of Jesus was simply this. He claims that I am a king. Now, Oftentimes, growing up in church, I got the idea that what really Jesus got Jesus in trouble was that he was a nice guy, just misunderstood, and therefore some mean people put him on a cross. You need to understand the claim of Jesus. He was not crucified because he was a nice guy. He was not crucified because he was misunderstood. He was crucified because he made a radical, rebellious, countercultural claim, and he claimed to be king. And the powers that be were threatened by that claim and they execute for it. And that's the story we have. And so the question that we have for this Easter is, what kind of king is Jesus? We're going to tell that in three acts that the Scriptures give us that account for the story from eyewitnesses that were there. Each of the acts has two scenes to them. Two scenes that come to us from Scripture, and the first is the idea of the anticipated king. And what you need to understand is as Jesus winds his ministry down and he's headed to his ultimate goal and his ultimate mission, he walks up on the city of Jerusalem. And word has already gone out and gone ahead of him, in fact, because he has risen Lazarus from the dead. And so this would-be king, this one that they anticipated was coming, Scripture tells us that an incredible event occurred as Jesus approached Jerusalem. And if you've ever seen a map of Jerusalem or perhaps have been to the Holy Lands, from the Mount of Olives is a hill that overlooks the city. In fact, you can see from the Mount of Olives, you can see onto the Temple Mount and where the temple would have stood. And it's a majestic sight. And Jesus would have crested over that hill and then down through the Kidron Valley and into the city. And what Scripture does, the eyewitnesses that were there that day, they tell us this, and if you would... Look at this scripture, please. This account. When they brought 
the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. A jubilation breaks out. A celebration breaks out. And they did something that may seem strange to us, but they go and they gather up these palm leaves. And they're waving them, they're celebrating, and then as this colt carrying Jesus on it comes close, they're laying down these palm leaves. Some are taking off their robes, and that was a very expensive, because they didn't have closets full of clothes like we do. And they were laying down the robes. Also, that the colt or the donkey, depending on the, the gospel version that you're reading, can walk across those. Now, to us, it's a very unique scene. But there's all kinds of symbolism in this anticipation. They would have recognized this. As they saw this, this was all the familiar pieces of what happened when a king that had conquered the country was coming in to proclaim his rule. And he would have a parade set up, and there was always a symbol. There was always a sign. If he came in, and he was going to come in with power and authority, and he was not to be challenged, and he was going to come in with aggression, he rode a steed that was a war mount. But if he came in with a message that says, I'm here because I'm a king of peace, and I'm going to rule benevolently over you, he'd come in on a young horse, or a colt, or a donkey. And so, this is a trigger to everybody watching they're seeing Jesus, and he's coming in like a king, and his king, his first sign to them is, I come in peace. And there's this celebration that breaks out, and there's this anticipation for him. And I realize that for many of us, we've anticipated something about God, something about Jesus, to come into our lives and do something. And we think he's going to come in in a certain way. Perhaps you think God's going to come in and he's going to be angry with you that when he shows up and he finally gets a hold of you, what he's going to do is he's going to set you down for the lecture of your life. The scolding to end all scoldings. Just to make you feel guilty because that's how you already feel. And we anticipate that. But see, Jesus comes in on his own terms. And even though there's a parade for him right now, when Jesus arrives into the city, he does this incredible thing. He goes right into the temple, and that's where everybody's thinking, this is where the king should go. He should go to the temple because he's going to be a spiritual ruler and a physical ruler. And when he arrives in the temple, just at the moment where the music swells, I think it's all about to happen in just a beautiful moment, it's like Jesus loses his mind. He sees what's going on in the temple, and what's going on in the temple was in the courts where people were supposed to be able to come to pray. They had set up a place of commerce. They set up shop money traders and people selling animals for sacrifice. And there were ex exorbitant prices going on. And so the first thing that Jesus encounters as he goes in is he encounters this reality that people are being kept from God. And he can't stand it. And so he begins to throw tables over. And he begins to drive out the people that are doing the money trades. And he clears house. Now, this was shocking because everybody 
that was in the parade assumed he was coming to overthrow Rome. Now he's in their own home overthrowing their own status quo and nobody had signed on for that one. Nobody had agreed for that one. It was like if Jesus had walked into the middle of it and burned the flag. Whoa, Jesus. We're all about getting rid of Rome, but you're upsetting our status quo now, and it triggers the events that's going to lead to his crucifixion. And by the end of the week, the crowd that was shouting Hosanna is going to shout, crucify him. All because the anticipation was a disappointment because they wanted Jesus to come in on their terms and how often do we want Jesus to show up on our terms? I want Jesus in just the right amount, in just the right way, at just the right time and I want him at a comfortable arm's distance, I want him close, but I want him at an arm's distance where I know he's never out of my reach but maybe perhaps I can keep him, keep myself out of his. Well, this scene transitions quickly. And Jesus sends through his disciples word to prepare what's called for the Passover. And this would be a very critical feast, a celebration, a, a remembrance in the life of the Jewish people. And those, his disciples that were with him, they had grown up their entire lives celebrating Passover. I mean, if you were any Jew of any good, decent standing at all, and even if you weren't in much decent standing, you were practicing Passover, because it was just part of what you did as being a Jew. And what Passover did, it remembered years and years and years ago when your people were trapped in Egypt as slaves, and God acted in a powerful way and freed them, and they brought them into what is now the Promised Land and Jerusalem and the surrounding country. And so that was celebrated with an with an anticipation that the king's going to come. And Jesus sets in the middle of that. And he, as he sets there, remember, in the disciples' heads, they're still hearing the drumbeat and the, the tune from Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're thinking, this is still going to go the way that we think it's going to go. And Jesus begins the Passover meal, which had all these different steps to it. All these different stages to it. And there was, it was almost a script. But Jesus is about to go off script. He's, he's starting with the script, but he's going to take a solid right turn real fast. And when he does, it totally changes it. It would be as if you and I were getting together for a 4th of July barbecue. And then with the fireworks going off in the background, somebody stood up and said, I am the reason we celebrate freedom and independence. And we'd look at him like, say, what? That's what Jesus does. Watch, read this with me. Or listen to this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Suddenly renames the whole thing. While they were, he, then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. And imagine these words coming out next. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He turns this whole feast upside down. He, he, he grabs a piece of bread, 
and that was a part of the meal, and they were expecting this, and then he was supposed to say a blessing over it, but when he gets to that blessing part, he says, this is my body, it's going to be broken for you. Now, understand, they didn't know what he was talking about. They're still thinking that he's about to ascend to the throne. And he describes it as his body to be broken. And suddenly he's injecting himself into this centuries-old tradition. And after he takes the meal, he grabs the cup. And it would have been a table wine. And as they poured the wine into the cup, he was supposed to recant a certain blessing, a certain prayer, and he redefines it and says, this is my blood. And then he adds this part at the very end that says, for the forgiveness of your sins. And he's coming into them now in a whole different way that they don't even understand yet that what's about to happen is going to give this meal that they practice for centuries of God doing something fantastic in the life of his people, he's about to do again. And it's going to be freedom, and it's going to be independence, but it's going to be freedom and independence, not from Rome, but from the things they fear the most, their sin and death. Can you imagine, just if you would, use your imagination just for a moment in the lives of the disciples that they're trying to put all the pieces together, and they don't know at this moment they're only hours away from his death, but can you go a few hours beyond that? And then the next time they see a piece of bread, they probably can't even eat. Because all they're thinking about is that he's been executed now and they're holding this bread. In fact, I, I, I can't prove this, but I wonder if this is the last time they were able to eat until they saw him again. Because they were in that moment of despair and they're looking at this and they're going, he told us it was going to be broken he told us it was going to be poured out. We had no idea what he meant at the time. But every time since then, when they put a bite of bread in their mouth or brought a cup up to their lips, they remembered. As we come today, we're going to celebrate this meal, this Passover meal, this Lord's Supper you just did. And I started thinking about other meals that I've been invited to, because you're invited to this one. And I thought of a meal recently, and I've seen this play out numerous times, and maybe you've had this experience too, so I'll, I'll share it, and you'll see if you had a similar experience to mine. Um, I saw this with my mom, and then this goes on now with, with my family and with Erica, is that when we're invited to a place, the proper, to come over for join somebody for a meal, the proper response is, what can we bring? Right? I mean, that's, that's a good, good response. Well, not long ago, David and Donna Kelly that worship with us here and serve as, he serves as one of our shepherds, they invite us over for a meal. And so David's on the phone and I'm on the phone and David says, we'd love for you to come over. So I, Erica, the Kellys invite us over. Erica asked the question, ask me what we can bring. David, what can we bring? David's on the phone. Just a second. You don't have to bring anything. Erica, they say nothing. No, that's not good enough. Ask him. So now David and I, who are not in charge at all, are the messengers caught between this? Now, it's good, polite manners to always ask, what can I bring? 
But when it comes to this meal, you need to break protocol. Because Jesus is hosting this meal. And just like David and Don invite us over and all, uh, many, many others here have done the same thing for us, at some point in that back and forth, they say, you being here is enough. We come into this meal so often, we try to bring something to it, don't we? Here's my spiritual resume. Here's all the good works I've done. Here's the, the things I've tried to get right. Here's how I've memorized the Ten Commandments. Or we think we've got to lug all of our shame into the middle of it. Jesus invites us to this meal, and David's going to come up, and he's going to pray over it. But it's not me hosting the meal. It's not David hosting the meal. Jesus is the host of this meal. And what you need to hear from Jesus is, you being present, just bring yourself. That's enough. Our act two opens, and Jesus has already completed the meal with his disciples, gone to a garden where they've been before to pray, and at that point he's betrayed. And he's betrayed and he's turned over to people that now have nothing but ill intent for him, and he's going to endure a series of trials, and these are all kangaroo courts, they're, they're mockeries of any kind of justice system. They're all set up to make him guilty already. And as he goes through and endures these trials, the question keeps coming to him is, are you a king? What kind of king are you? Where's your followers? And this mockery of him begins to the point where he ends up in front of the governor, the, the Roman official over the area, his name's Pilate. And as he questions Jesus, he's trying to get at truth, and he's trying to figure out what to do, because he's got political pressure breathing down his back. And what he's got is one more would-be Messiah in front of him. And he's trying to figure out who's making the claim that he's a king. Because if there's a claim of kingship, then that is a threat to Rome, and he just can't ignore it. And so, with the crowd before him, at some point he tries to appease them. And what he has is, he's got one card left to play. Because he really is not sure what he thinks about Jesus, but he doesn't deem him or seems to be the threat that everybody else seems to make him out. But he's in a situation where he thinks his hands are tied, and so he's going to play this one last card. And in his prisons right then at that moment, he has one that is guilty of insurrection. One that is guilty of a rebellion. One that the crowd should hate the very name of. His name is Barabbas. And so, he's going to trump up this tradition that he can let somebody go to show that he's a generous governor. And so he goes out to the crowd and he says, he says, I've got Barabbas and I've got Jesus, the one you claim to be king. Who do you want to let me go? And you know that Pilate was caught off guard when they called for Barabbas to be released. And then he says, but what do you want me to do with Jesus? And then the crowd that cried Hosanna before now cries crucify him. So Pilate washes his hands of the whole deal. And he turns him over to be flogged or beaten. And we have a humiliated king now. And Scripture tells us this, 
I'm going to show you what, when he's turned over, what happens to Jesus. And look at the humiliation that's brought upon him. Then he, and this is Pilate, he releases Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed, over, handed him over to be crucified. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. So you've got one prisoner, weak in the middle, and all these armed guards in armor around him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. I mean, can you see this picture? That They're just being bullies of the worst kind. And they're, they're mocking him. And maybe you can remember back to a day when I can, back in middle school, and you're having the bully confrontation, and it's always, you say, well, I, I try to be good at this, and they go, oh yeah, really? Sure you're good at that. And then everybody kind of joins in like a feeding frenzy of piranhas on you. And, oh, he says he's good at, and fill in the blank, well, let's just see. And they take that to a whole new level. And so you now have grown men that are on the ground, and they're paying homage to Jesus. Oh, King of the Jews. Oh, the so powerful Jews. The ones that we control. The ones that we tell whether or not they can even come out of their houses or not. Oh, hail the King of the Jews. And they mocked him and beat him. Then they spit on him, and they take the staff that's supposed to be his scepter, and they begin to strike him on the head again and again. And remember what they put on the head. They put the crown of thorns, and all they're doing is driving those thorns in. Several years ago, I was given this. This is a crown that's been fashioned from the type of thorns you find around Jerusalem. And so this is sitting on his head as his undeserved crown, and they're taking it, and not only are they beating him with what I presume to be a stick of some mass, like a club, but they're driving, their goal is to drive these in deep as they can. And so they beat him and mock him and shame him and spit on him and they humiliate him. And Jesus takes it all. How? I have no idea. We sing a song Maybe you're familiar with it. It's called, He Could Have Called 10,000 Angels. If I'd been in the moment, it would have been 10,000 angels with automatic weapons. That, that's the restraint that he has. But it does fill in one more piece that whatever kind of king that he is, whatever you think that he is, you cannot make the claim that he doesn't understand me that he's too far removed, he's only walked on a cloud, he's only stayed distant from us, because here he is in the very middle of receiving all the, the humiliation and mockery and scorn and shame that a group of men can conceive of to throw at him. He's taking it all. He knows what it's like to be us at our worst. He's not a king that stayed at a distance. He's a king that got into the middle of the mess 
and took it. So I don't know where you are with Jesus. But I guarantee you, if there's a distance there, it's not because Jesus hasn't come your direction. And maybe this Easter is the Easter that you stop and realize that all that shame that you felt in your life, all the times that you were on the outside, made fun of, ridiculed, whatever it is, hurt and wounded by somebody that you loved, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. And therefore, we don't have a king that stands at a distance, but we have one that empathizes with us and steps into the very middle of it. And that leads us right into the very next scene, where he goes from a humiliated king to carry out the rest of Pilate's orders to become a crucified king. We could have also used the word executed king here. And I want you to look at this bit of scripture, and what's fascinating to me about this is, let me read this for you, and then I'll make a, make a point, but here's what scripture says. In Luke 23, it says, when they came to the place called the skull, this is the place where they do the executions, they crucified him there along with the criminals. Now, what's fascinating to me in all of scripture is there's incredible detail leading right up to the cross and, and all the description about the humiliation and the flogging that he received, the whipping that he received. And then there's lots of details around the crucifixion, but when it comes to the crucifixion, they, don't, they barely describe the actual act. In fact, they don't describe the act of him just being nailed to the cross. They, all the Gospels have a line that's basically, and there they crucified him, or then they crucified him. And the reason for that is because while crucifixion may be foreign to us, there's nobody in the first century world that would have been reading these accounts that had any mistake about what crucifixion was. They had seen too many of them. They had, they had been confronted with them as they walked along the road and Rome kept putting up billboards called crucifixion that says, don't mess with Rome. Do not challenge our power. And so, none of the gospel writers felt the need to describe how the nail goes into his arm. Or how they would bend up the legs and then drive a nail through the feet for the specific purpose. So that whoever is on the cross, whoever is being crucified, can push down on those nails, excruciating pain, for the purpose of lifting themselves up because when they're hanging by their arms after a certain amount of time, they begin to suffocate because of their lungs. And so they have to push up to relieve the pressure to breathe. It was a science that they had. And the goal was simply to draw it out as long as possible. And Jesus goes to that cross. And the scripture just says, and there they crucified him. And the thing that I would say is the reason that we know about crucifixion today is not because of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that Rome crucified, but because of one that Rome crucified. Because of the man Jesus. That's why it's in our collective conscience now. That's why we understand anything about it collectively as a group. Not just archaeologists, but 
all of us have some idea because of the one that was crucified. And in the middle of the crucifixion, Scripture tells us that Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. They have no idea. And he fulfills what he promised at the meal, that this is being done for the forgiveness of sins. And then near the end, Jesus pushes himself up one last time. And I don't know if he cried out in a loud voice or if it was just a statement that came out. It says, it is finished. And with that, the muscles in his legs release. And he drops down one more time with all the weight being on his arms again. And he dies. The one that claimed to be king, the one that claimed to be God, dies. All the disciples. You can imagine that they were at some distance watching this. And with them in the middle of that, for them, hope died. Because what they could not see was happening on the cross at that moment was that Jesus was standing in their place. And all the judgment that should have been on them, the judgment that should have been on me, the judgment that should have been on you was being consumed in that moment. And one was willing to stand in our place and give up his life. So that's why when we look at a cross, I, I know we've decorated it up, but I don't want you to see it as a piece of jewelry. I want you to see it both as a place of execution and then ironically as a place of substitution and hope. Because there's a king that took my place. So we're going to share a video with you with a song that invites you to survey, to look upon and contemplate this old cross and the hope that it means. And so, just from where you are, just enjoy what you see here and participate. And I just want you to reflect while we're playing this on the sacrifice that was made for you. And if you're not in a place yet where you think the sacrifice was for you, I want you to wrestle with why. Why have I not received that this is done on my behalf. If you Act 3 opens with him becoming the entombed king, the buried king. In fact, Scripture gives us these words. There was a man named Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man. He was a member of a council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He had not been on board with what they'd done to Jesus. He came from the Gian town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Joseph bravely does something. He associates himself with this insurrectionist, this would-be criminal. He says, let me take down the body. 
And so he goes and he takes down the body and they're rushed a little bit because the sun is setting. And when the sun sets, the next day begins. And the next day was the Sabbath. And so no work could be done on the Sabbath, especially you couldn't be interacting with a dead body. And so they had to perform it quickly. And so Joseph brings Jesus down. He has some help. He wraps the body and they place it in his tomb. And so it's a borrowed tomb that Jesus has. And he's placed there, and they would have rolled a great rock in front of it. And what we're told from other parts of Scripture is that Rome comes along, and Pilate doesn't want anything to betray or mess with the body. And so he puts a seal on this tomb, a Roman seal, and you didn't break a Roman seal. It said Rome had authority over this tomb. And he stations guards in front of it so that the body cannot be stolen, cannot be taken away. And there Jesus lies. He wasn't unconscious. He wasn't in some kind of shocked state. He wasn't in some kind of trance. He was dead. God had died in that moment. And then we're in the middle of Saturday. And what's incredible about Saturday, as Jesus is the entombed king at this moment, is that Scripture is almost completely silent on Saturday. Lots of activity on Friday, but on Saturday, there's this almost painfully screaming silence of Scripture. And the truth is, we've all been there before, haven't we? We've been in a Saturday where we wonder, where's God? Why is He gone? Why hasn't He shown up? Why am I in the middle of this mess? Why am I in the middle of this grief, in the middle of this fear, in the middle of this anxiety, and He's nowhere to be found? And so from that, we move into the final scene. And I want to read this from... Scripture from you, but before I read the Scripture, I want you to understand that nobody at that first Easter Sunday was preparing for Easter Sunday. Okay? Nobody was out having sunrise service. Okay, Nobody was gathered by the tomb waiting for the sun to tip over the... going 5, 4, 3, 2, cue music, roll stone, here he is. Nobody. In fact, I love this quote from Andy Stanley. Nobody expected no body. Isn't that great? I wish I'd written that. Nobody expected there to be no body in the tomb. And because they didn't expect it, some ladies go to the tomb to prepare properly prepared now, because the first one was so rushed, the body for the long burial. And here's what Scripture tells us. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the tomb, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. 
But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? And that's a question we're going to come back to. He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. We've got this representation up here, but can you imagine the women? that They're approaching the tomb, and they're wondering who's going to roll the stone away. They're, maybe the guards will help them. Maybe they'll be kind to them. But they're there to prepare a dead body. And so they arrive, and the stone's already been removed, and now they're being confronted by two men that are gleaming in white. And they ask him this incredible question. It says, why do you look for the living among the dead? Translated, why would you look for somebody that's alive in a cemetery? Why are you looking under gravestones for somebody that's now breathing? That's not where you find life. You, you don't go to life, you don't go to a cemetery to find life. Occasionally, there's some fresh flowers that you'll find, but you don't encounter your loved one again at a cemetery. And I love that question because the angel is asking these ladies and he's asking all of us, you're not going to find a risen, living Savior in a cemetery. Why would you look for that in any part of your life? And so often we look for living things in dead areas of our life, don't we? We, we want to go in all the wrong places to find the answers. And what the angels at the tomb that day and what the ladies were experiencing very first among everybody else was that life is beyond the grave. The grave did not have the final say, and it no longer has the final say, but there is life beyond, and that begins to change everything. The hope of Easter is that you are no longer defined by sin, and you're no longer defined by death. Because Jesus blows the doors out of both of those. See, the stone is rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so we could go in and know that the tomb is empty. And what Jesus does and what God does in that moment of the resurrection is he's making a claim that this is the new way of things. This is the new covenant. And ultimately, all things will be redeemed. All of creation will be resurrected. All of what God created and was so magnificent and wonderful before we came along and messed up will be restored to its glory. Not because of you and your effort or my effort, but because Jesus walked out of the tomb and that changes everything. I said at the beginning, you may not believe the story. What I want you to know as you wrestle with whether or not you believe the story is the Christian faith, Christianity is not based on the Bible, okay? Now, I know for some that sounds heretical, but hang with me just a second. The Christian faith is all based on one single event in history that Jesus walked out of the tomb. If that didn't happen, the rest of the Bible doesn't matter. But because that happened, it makes the difference in all the world. We don't know where the actual tomb of Jesus was. There's some 
possibilities. Some of them have some good archaeological evidence behind them. But I'll share one that I got to see one time. This is called the Garden Tomb, or Gordon's Tomb, based on the archaeologists that helped uncover it. It's just outside the city walls in, in Jerusalem. I, I'm not making a claim this is actually it, but I got to see this. And I got to see this tomb in a very particular time in my story. It was about six, seven years ago. And at a time, I had gone through one of the most difficult extended seasons of ministry that I've ever encountered. And I was at a pretty low place. Just some personal struggles, some ministry struggles. Ministry is difficult at times, and it was really difficult. And I was really asking and struggling with a lot of questions, and I was in a low, low place. And then that time was capped off at the end by my mother passing away. And so in this dark place, I had an opportunity to go and travel to the Holy Lands. This is just a few months after my mom's funeral. And on a Sunday morning, we got to go visit this site. And we took communion there together. And it doesn't matter to me. I, I'm not making a claim that this is the real site. But it matters everything to me that the tomb is really empty. Because in that moment, God was speaking to me in a very unique way, saying, this is true. There is something beyond the grave. There is something beyond to hope for. And the Easter message is simply this. That if God can bring life to the dead body of Jesus, is there anything that he can't do? If, if God can bring life to the dead body of Jesus, what can he do in your marriage that you think is over? If God can bring life and breath to the dead body of Jesus, what can he do to your fears and your anxieties? What can he do to your addictions? What can he do to all your broken relationships? What can he do to your children that you think perhaps you've been at a distance for them for decades now? Or maybe you think they're too far gone to even come back to God. What can he do in all of these situations? You think maybe your life is running without purpose, without hope, without direction. What can he do in your life? Because after he's the anticipated king and the remembered king, and the humiliated king, and the crucified king, and the entombed king, ultimately, he's a resurrected king. And there's the difference. Because they attempted to put him in a grave. And for three days, he was there. But then, God breathes life. And he arose.